I'm Carol Duncan and welcome to the Lost Newcastle podcast. With more than 70,000 members, Lost Newcastle has become the online meeting place for generations of Novocastrians, sharing photos, stories, finding lost friends and loved ones, and learning plenty of new things about this place we call home. Whether you're a local, an expat, or new to Newcastle, grab a cuppa and enjoy. In this episode, I catch up with Rick Poynton, whose long career in both radio and the music industry has seen him write a brilliant book full of stories and anecdotes about the brilliant music history of a city. Join me as Rick regales you with tales of the £10 poems, legendary Newcastle venues like the Impala, the Cavern, Henry Mousetraps, the Palais and the Savoy, Bus Stop, Rayford's Records and his own Benny and the Jets, who at their peak were doing more than 300 nights a year. Sandra, the go-go girl, and just why did Barry Gibb make a secret trip to Newcastle? Newcastle is full of myths and legends and the music industry is no different, but now you can hear these tales straight from someone who was there. It is so good to see you, Rick Point, and how are you doing? I'm good, Carol. Thank you very much. I first met you, oh, I don't know, a few decades ago, um, working in radio. Yep, yeah, I've worked in radio a lot. Uh, 2HD, 2KO, 2KY, and finally 2NURFM. So. KY Country. Yes, it w- yeah, and <laughs> racing in those. I was only there a year, but yeah, it was interesting. It was doing racing? 2K- You're a music man. That yeah. must have driven you mad. I know, it did. I didn't, didn't like that. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine it, please, you all that no. much. Radio gets in, doesn't it? Like I, liquid yeah. into this chalk. I love radio. It was great. Yeah. Would you do it again? Um, it's all changed, though. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, yeah, I really liked it, but I, I did a lot of other things in radio, like writing commercials and uh, voicing commercials and mm. things like that. So uh, I, I never really did a, an on-air shift like you as such, not a... I did segments, like a rock and roll segment each Saturday and things like that. And sometimes I'd sit in with various people, like I sat in with Art Ryan. Papa. Yeah, weekly when he was at 2HD and did a, a segment. But I've never done a, a shift like, like you do, no, n- not totally. It was fun. I think all aspects of it were fun. Yeah. But a lot has changed. A lot of it has changed for the yeah, better, it has. <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I think for you and, and for me, I think that common thread right through those parts of our careers has been a love of music. You as a professional, me just because I love it. Yeah, me too. Can't play an instrument. I wish I could, but I can't. Doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine life without music and I'm a silly record collector, CD collector, so it just was the natural thing. How many you got? Well... Hard to say, but I recently <laughs> sold. I recently sold thirty thousand, and I've still got a whole room full with all four walls, ceiling to floor. But I just the room is things that I play or I might play. But the thirty thousand I sold were ones that I was attempting to go through. And uh, anyway, a guy came up from Sydney that's got a big business and bought a truckload. So Helen reckons I've got too many, but you can never have too many. Yeah, I don't and know about Salvos that. Every might have that one you're looking for. You, you never know, do you? You never know, Carol. You just got to pop in and have a look, just <laughs> exactly. in case that that piece of gold exactly. is in there. Who was young Rick Poynton? What were you interested in? How did your what path did your career follow to to both radio and with a love of music and performance? It's funny, you know. Uh, I just fell into things, and um, 
I mean, after high school, I didn't do well. At, I went to Newcastle Boys High, but I didn't do that well. And, you know, mum and dad said, oh, you know, you might as well have a look around. And they saw something in the newspaper. And I was 15 and one month. And I uh, went and applied and got the job. So and it, in those days, it was called junior clerk. Uh-huh. But you got the lunches, you got the newspapers <laughs> for everyone, you got their dry cleaning and you got their, you know, it was um, in a shipping company. But it was interesting because I used to have to go down to Lee Wharf and get the ship's papers from the master, take them to the customs house, enter the ship. And it was interesting. And um, so there was always four or five ships coming and going and uh, so I just fell into that and then I was there about five years and I tried an accountant that I hated because accountancy I couldn't do it you know <laughs> yes <laughs> I wasn't for accountancy uh-huh. and um, then I worked at the NRMA for a while and I've always had a day job I've never I've never just done music mm. right or wrongly but and then I bought a record shop in Swansea um, for 10 years, from 74 to 83, Yeah, before I went into the media. So I just, you know, oh, a record shop was the obvious thing for me, collecting records and then playing music, you know, all day long. I was playing Eagles and ELO and Doobie Brothers and I thought, that's pretty good. I was going to say, that, that <laughs> era, that decade uh, there that you've had that shop, there's some prime stuff being released at that you're, point. You're spot on. The 70s for albums, like 60s were huge I love 60s. 60s were huge for singles yeah. and hits. Yeah. 70s albums, you know, America, Seals and Crofts, yeah. you name it. It was, was brilliant time. I just put on an album I liked and so often people would say, oh, what's that? I'll buy that. And it was just, it was just lovely talking to people about music. Yeah. You know? I think I did a similar thing. In high school I did work experience um, at... Uh, Powderworks Records oh, did you? in Brookvale in Sydney oh, yeah, yeah. when they were because I wanted to know everything about how it worked yeah. so I did work experience there as Midnight Oil's Bird Noises yeah. EP was yeah. being pressed um, which blows my kids minds um, and then I went to do work experience at 2SM which was then the number one yep. Sydney radio station yep. that was super cool and then into Albert Studios, the old Albert Studios in King Street with um, Vander and Young. That's when right, they were you told me. That's incredible. Isn't it? I mean, yeah, Vander and Young. Because I, mean, I just wanted to know how stuff worked. They had a computer, they had a, one of the very first Fairlight computers yep. invented in Australia yep. uh, to use in the studio. And they had taught it or you know, programmed yeah. it to say swear words. <laughs> yeah, geez, they wrote some hits and produced some hits, didn't they, Vander and Young? Yeah, hello, ACDC and just John Paul Young, everybody else. Everybody, yeah. everybody. Yeah. I've talked about that before, actually, that era of the £10 POM to Australia gave us a music industry. I thought of writing a book, actually, Do after it. my book. I thought of writing a book called Australian Music and the £10 POMs. But, I mean, even even recently, people, so many, Broderick Smith. Oh, yeah. £10 POM. Yeah, Ballet Broderick. Um, almost everybody, Masters, Apprentices, hmm. you know, uh, Glenn Shorrock. Barnsley. I had this Barnsley, conversation yeah. once with Joe Camilleri who yeah. pulled me up and he said, but I'm from Malta and yeah. I only cost £5. <laughs> <laughs> £10 Malteser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it really, it, it really was an amazing era. So yeah. was it from the record store that you went to media? Yep. Why? Well, um, I reckon I can start to hear Art Ryan getting involved. Yes, short, right? Okay. Spot on. Actually, mm. um, I did the shop, and 
while I had the shop, Art and I were involved in the Beating Around the Bush Channel 3 TV show. Yep. And I've always been in touch with Art, spoke to him yesterday. A couple of people asked me, did I want to sell the shop? And I hadn't thought about it, but I thought, you know. And I was playing, at that point, Benny and the Jets was ridiculously busy. We were playing over 300 nights a week. A year. nights a year. No, yep. you wouldn't. <laughs> we were playing over well over 300 nights a year. Now, two of the guys in the band gave up their jobs and they just played golf during the day and um, played in the band at night. But I always kept the shop going. So I was working all day, working all night, nearly all year. And Art said, you know, you should think about radio. And he said, uh, two KOs looking for somebody. I went in there and had a word. David Mully was the manager. I ended up going to 2KO as promotions manager. And I was there for two years and then I got an offer to go to 2HD where I was for about 14 years. So, uh, yeah, I fell into it like that. Art, Art sort of pushed me and prodded me and probably helped me behind the scenes. Good times in radio and the in the 70s, 80s, it S- was... Speaking of imports, though, Rick Point, and you're one. Yeah, definitely. £10? £10, yep. <laughs> what made your family come here? Uh, well, my dad used to um, work in the potteries in Staffordshire where they made all the pottery. Oh, my goodness, yep. Dad was a uh, manager of a, uh, of a pottery works. In the war... Dad had a few injuries and had malaria and a few other worse things and he was a rat of Tobruk and he got shipped out of Tobruk, sent to Alexandria Hospital to recover and then they sent him to Burma and dropped him behind the Japanese lines with 10 men and mm. he had to go around blowing up railroads. and So he eventually got back to England in pretty bad shape. Yeah. Mum was his nurse. They had an allocated bed and I don't know, whoever came. Anyway, Dad, Mum looked after Dad and they got married and he was in the potteries and he always had trouble with his lungs Mm. after the war. And a doctor said to Dad, if you don't get to a warmer climate, you won't be alive by the time you're 50, you know, if you don't get to a better... I mean, the place we used to live at the time, near Stoke-on-Trent... The sky was just black from all the the pottery kilns. Yeah. You see photos and there's like 50 pottery kilns mm. and the sky was black and you get on a bus and everyone's coughing into their handkerchiefs and 50-year-old men were dying, like my grandfather, from silicosis. So mum and dad were sitting there one night and uh, on came a little thing about Bondi Beach at Christmas and everyone on the beach and... I said, let's go. <laughs> that was it. Uh, unimaginably massive decision to make, oh, I reckon. I don't think I could do it, Carol. Hmm. They had a, we had a huge family, Dad's mum, and a huge family. Dad had brother, sister, really close family, and I can still remember them sending us off at um, Stoke Railway Station. And uh, we, come, we came out to um, Australia, didn't know a soul. Hmm. I, I don't know how they did it, but it turned out it turned out great, and uh, you know, it boggles my mind. Yeah. And and to think about you know families that have come before them, oh. you know, communication was still. You, you were lucky if you were able to you know send a telegram or book oh, yeah. book a, a, a phone call to make overseas. 
you know, even when I was a kid in the 70s. But, you know, for generations that have come before us and before yours, indeed, it must have been like stepping off the end of the oh. earth for some families. Um, would, have, would have been horrendous. And some of them, of course, came out on sailing ships. Mm. <laughs> mm. But, um, yeah, look, when mum and dad had no money and when they got here, the job that dad was promised wasn't forthcoming. Two weeks in, they had £20 left. Yeah. Because the job wasn't there. He was promised a job mm. and uh, just wasn't there. That must have been incredibly worrying. Uh, How many of you came over? Four kids. Four Mum kids. Mum and dad and four kids. Okay. You know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. We wouldn't change it. And um, Mum yeah, and Dad... Yeah, but your parents must have been having... They'd have been having kittens at that point. Early about, on. We've got £20 left. That's it. Early on, it must have been horrible. Yeah. Um, we were, we, for a year, we lived in a weekender at Ellie Barna. Mm. No toilet, no, no sewer... And four of us in a little outside sort of veranda. Whereas in England, we had a two-storey council house, upstairs toilet, downstairs toilet, TV. Did you have two dunnies when you were a kid? Yeah. Get out. I know. I've still only got well, one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you need one. But, yeah, it was a council house, but it was a, a newer yeah. one. Yeah. Rick Point and you released a book. Yep. Last year. <laughs> called Hey Rock and Roll. And when I heard that you were doing this book, I just thought, you know, it'll be it'll be a little book, soft cover, you know, sort of you pick it up at your news agent. It's a whopper. It's a it's a it's a doorstop. It it is a doorstop and it's massive. Why did you want to write this book? People it's funny, people always said you should write a book. People had asked me a story about playing with the Bee Gees or Johnny O'Keefe or Cole Joy, who I was good friends with all and they'd say oh you should put this story in a book and that was going on for years but there was two or three people that I was really annoyed because they did so much for Newcastle music and never ever had a mention who well there was Reg Mason mm -hmm. you'd remember yeah Reg Mason he managed one of my bands uh, a band called the Second Thoughts and he was a manager of Rayford's records and then he had his own shop called Impact Sound and Reg and he had a little a disco upstairs in the 2HD Winter Garden called um, Henry Mousetraps what a groovy name <laughs> and, and Reg used to manage a few bands and he really helped my band at the time and got us a record contract but he did a lot for Newcastle he actually I think you could say was the founding father of the Koalas the marching Koalas oh, okay. yep. a lot of people don't know and I've never read anything about him and Freddie Pears, who owned the Palais, mm -hmm. and uh, the Savoy, and Remtex. Not that that's musical, but Fred was a lovely guy. No one ever wrote much about him. I, I went and spoke to uh, Fred's daughter, Sue, and I spoke to Reg's wife, and no one had ever sought them out. And a bloke that sort of no one remembers much except kids that went to the venues called Ted Vanderland. And now Ted was a Dutchman and came to Australia when he was in his teens and he operated more Newcastle venues for bands than anybody. In Wolf Street, we used to play at the Impala, the Cavern, which was upstairs next to the Lyric, mm -hmm. and, a few, and down, the biggest one, down the West End, not far from here, it's in that big Salvo's store. That was a disco called Bus Stop. Now, Is that where that was? Bus stop was oh. there. It was a car. It was a car showroom. Yeah. It was voted three years in a row, I believe, um, through GoSet magazine, Australia's best live venue. I mean, we played there with people like. 
Billy Thorpe when the windows were moving in and uh, in and out and the window Ted was worried the windows were going to smash Doug Parkinson Masters Apprentices you name it everybody killed to play at bus stop um, thousand fifteen hundred two thousand sometimes packed in a lot of blues bands like Chain uh, Ladidas incredible venue so Ted had all of those no one had ever written a word about him, I don't think. And mm. he lived up the coast for a while, but I tracked him down and we caught up after 50 years. And um, he was just in tears, actually. He couldn't believe that anyone would go to the trouble to find him and then write something. Oh, and gosh. His family are the same. I, I, Tim, Ted's son, Tim is in touch with me regularly and they're just so grateful. So was Reg Mason's wife because he'd never received any accolades mm. and they should. But Ted, there's a couple of brilliant stories about Ted in the book and uh, with Barry Gibb and uh, Barry Gibb's secret trip to Newcastle, which has never been written about. Do tell. Well, in 1963, Ted came up from Melbourne and opposite the Nine Ways, there were, he had a little, wouldn't even be a cafe. Oh, yeah, call it a cafe, a hamburger joint. Mm -hmm. Very small. Opposite the Century Theatre, the great old Century Theatre. It's a pity that's not still there and, mm. and it was anyway Ted's Ted had this little old cafe and one night about 10 30 Barry Gibb wanders in followed closely by Robin and Morris Ted says he told the story so beautifully he said he said Barry was really respectful and lovely and and Barry said you know excuse me sir um we're a singing group you, you probably don't know us and called the BGs and Ted couldn't remember whether he'd heard about them at that stage but he said they said we've been at the Century Theatre we've just finished a um, concert with Johnny O'Keefe and a few other acts I think Dick Richards and maybe Judy Stone and he said we've just finished that concert and we've driven up from Sydney not in their car I think they got a lift with somebody and he said when we went out the, the front the foyer to be paid the promoter had left town with all the money <gasps> and this happened a fair bit back in those days yeah i've never heard of it these days but happened a fair bit so there's not only johnny o'keefe and the bgs and everybody and no money so barry said to ted you know we haven't eaten all day and we've been on the road and uh, he said they looked terrible he said they were ringing wet and and it, barry said uh you wouldn't happen to have any, um, you know, bits of chips or something that you're about to throw out. It's late at night. Oh. And he said, you couldn't spare us. So Ted sat them down, rustled up a hamburger, and he said they ate that instantly. And he could see they were still hungry. And so he said, you stay here. He left them in his little cafe. And he ran a few doors up the road to a fish and chip shop because he knew that them being 10 pound palms he knew they'd love fish and chips <laughs> <laughs> so he came back with this newcastle herald full of fish and chips yeah and he said they sat there and ate half of it and he, they were thanking him profusely and he said they were lovely and that they would be because i spent a bit of time with barry and he's a lovely person mm. genuine lovely person anyway they thanked ted profusely they left and off they went to conquer the world yeah and Anyway, and they did, and they did, mm. and that's a great story. But there's more. Directly opposite where his little cafe was, Ted had moved on long ago. He had the, the three or four discos, and 
um, they finished up, I think bus stop closed in early 70s and then Ted did some other things. He, Ted didn't ever make any money out of it. People ripped him off. He had to pay back all the debts. People left him with debts in some of these places and he made sure he paid the debts off. In 1977, directly over the road... Sandra, I, used to, I still call her Sandra the go-go girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she adores that at this point. I hope you're listening, Sandra. Anyway, Sandra Elias, her name was, I remember. Uh, there was Sandra and Gay, and I've got quite a few photos of Sandra and Gay. They were my, our favourite go-go girls on the back of the 2HD <laughs> fire engine in the Matara procession. That's fantastic. Isn't that a great photo? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, the old 2HD had an old fire engine they used to use on promotions. Anyway, Ted used to have... The listeners, you've probably seen the old um, Get Smart uh, episodes where they go to a disco and there's cages hanging from the ceilings and there's these girls gyrating madly in the cages and Denise Drysdale used to be one that used to do it on band. Oh, Ding Dong. Ding Dong, yeah, on The Go Show and all those... Sandra and Gay, the two, our two favourite go-go girls, they used to dance. In fact, Art Ryan's daughter used to dance at the Palais in one of the cages, I think. Nicole. Nicole, I think. Why doesn't that surprise me? It doesn't me? surprise you, <laughs> does it? Anyway, uh, Ted had two cages strung up at the cavern and I think the Palais had a couple eventually. So Sandra, the go-go girl, was standing opposite where Ted's shop used to be at the, at the main bus stop at the Century Theatre. Mm-hmm. And this limo pulls up and she thought, gee, that looks like Barry Gibb, probably, because it was Barry Gibb and Barry, dark in the window, Barry winds down the window and he calls Sandra over. He said, sorry, excuse me, this is a really long shot. You would never have heard of a bloke called Ted Vander, Vander something, Lant. And she said, oh, yeah, Ted, of course, he's a good friend. What's the, what's the chance of that happening? Mm. So he said, he used to have a little cafe here and she said, oh, yeah, long ago and Barry's still sitting in the car and Sandra's bending down at the window and he said, what, what did he do? And she said, oh, well, he had, he had all these other little discos and, um, and they all eventually closed and uh, Barry said, here's another thing, you wouldn't know where Ted lived and she said, yeah, I do actually. He's just over at Mayfield East, about five minutes away. So, oh, tell me she hopped in the limo. So she hopped in the limo. Yes! And in between Barry and the lovely Linda, who Barry's... She was Miss Edinburgh and she was a, a real stunner. In fact, at that point, Barry and Linda would have been what they now call the hot couple in the world. Yeah. They were on all the, in all the papers hmm. and all the, you know, yeah. um, the movie premieres and yeah. stuff. Anyway, so... We're in the limo. We're going limo. to Mayfield. And she takes them over to Mayfield. Uh-huh. Now, Ted's house, if Tim was listening, you wouldn't mind me saying, was a little, very inconspicuous, small cottage. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's so old, it was made out of sandstone blocks, like the original old one-foot-thick sandstone blocks, so it was very old. Ted came to the door and he was a bit befuddled. He couldn't quite work out what was going on. (laughs) So Barry gave him a big, you know, cuddle. And he looked over Barry's shoulder and there's Linda and, you know, looking like they'd stepped out of a movie. And there's Sandra. Sandra the go-go girl. The go-go girl. <laughs> so, hello, Sandra, Ted. Bar- 
Barry Gibb. So they all went in and sat down. And Ted said, what are, what, what are you doing here? You're touring... Ted was a bit befuddled. And he said, are you touring Australia? And Barry said, no, no, no. I've, um, I've come to see you. And he said, yeah, but, I mean, are you um, doing TV or something? He said, no, I've come to see you. And he said, we had a week off. And he said, Robin and Morris have gone to the Bahamas and I've come to Newcastle. <laughs> and Ted thought he was sort of joking or something. And he said, yeah, but you're doing... No, I'm not doing anything else, Ted. I've got to go back to Sydney tonight. But he said, Ted was just staggered. And then Barry presented him with a gold watch. Oh, gosh. To Ted, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And at that point, at that very point... I think the BGS had seven or eight of the American top ten. And the same here and the same all over the world. Mm. And what the BGS didn't sing in the top ten, they'd written. Yeah. And there's Barry at Mayfield giving a watch to Ted. And, you know, Ted was really, really choked up. And Barry said, listen, we, we haven't got... They've been there for a little while. He said, I've always told Linda how much we love coming to Newcastle to play because we love the beaches. You couldn't show us around the beaches, could you? So Ted was doing up his old Monaro. They left the other car, they jumped in the Monaro <laughs> and went up to... And at Nobby's Beach, the police pulled them over. Yeah. And police comes to the window, so Barry tries to slide down and look inconspicuous. And the policeman says, ''Excuse me, sir, your taillights aren't working.'' And oh, Ted no. said, ''Uh... He said, look, officer, that wouldn't surprise me. I was working on the car. I'm really sorry. I didn't even intend to bring it out tonight. And the policeman stopped talking and said, is that Barry Kipp? And of course, Barry could hear it. And Barry said, Wayne, and hello. And he said, oh, boy, autograph. <laughs> and he said, he said, you wouldn't want a police. That's where are you going now? And, and Ted said, well, I was showing Barry and Linda the beaches. And they've got to go back to Sydney. You need a police escort. So off they went, up to Bar Beach, up to Merriweather. And Fantastic. I thought, how lovely. And later on, towards the end of uh, Bus Stop Disco, when it was closing, some lowlife stole all of Ted's memorabilia, oh. including the BG's watch. What a great story. And um, so that was Ted Vanderland, and I've written a few stories about him, and uh, a lot of people have, have contacted me about that, and Johnny O'Keefe has... Got Johnny O'Keefe stories in there, Little Richard. Yeah, the incredibly notorious Little Richard yeah. story. I'm going to give you time for one more story. What do you want to tell? Do you want to tell the Little Richard one? Well, or do we all know that well enough now? You choose. It's you, been because in the this book, a lot lately. this book is chock a block full of Thank stories. You. And if you love your Newcastle local history and or music history, you will dig this book. Thank you. You choose a story. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the Little Richard thing has been in the news a lot lately. And Johnny O'Keefe, are you sick of the Little Richard story? No, because it is one of those incredible uh, Newcastle stories that people think is a myth and will continue to... Ca it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Every year it comes up. Yeah, every three or four months somebody writes in yeah. somewhere yeah. into Lost Newcastle or somewhere yeah. and says, is that true, Little Richard? Yeah, you know. it's like the number of people who still believe that the bottom of the children's pool, the canoe pool, still oh. has a map of the world. Yes. And let's all get together this weekend with shovels and dig it out. <laughs> There's no map there anymore. Yeah, people right. hasn't been for 50 years. And what's the other? Oh, that, you know, people have no idea 
there is a uh, swimming pool baths under uh, the old oh, Civic Arcade. City Arcade. arcade. Hmm. Yeah. In, no, you can't get down there. But it is still there. Yeah, incredible. Okay. Little Richard, let's well, go. Little Richard, I've always bought books about music. And in the 70s, I was reading a book about Little Richard. And it said, of course, Little Richard did quit show business for a while and became a minister. And he threw his jewellery off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Now, I knew that wasn't true. How did you know that was not true, Rick Poynton? Well... Because some people think that's true. Yeah, I know. But um, name-dropping, my friend Johnny O'Keefe was there and witnessed <laughs> the whole thing. Okie dokie. That's and a pretty good source, isn't it? I know. Hmm. Well, it, it's happened. That's, that's now become... My story in the book becomes the final thing about it. Like I've had writers from America mm. ask me, can they... Because in the book, uh, I've got the letter from Johnny O'Keefe explaining it. Yeah. Because uh, I said to him, I said, that can't be right. You were there. He said, oh, yeah, I know. I said, well, I've had these people from America ask him. He said, tell you what, I'll send you a letter. I just not that long ago gave the OK for a, an American author to use my letters because I'm happy for it to be corrected. Yeah. And it's always Sydney Harbour Bridge or Sydney Harbour. People have said they saw him throw it off the Carrington Bridge. I mean, <laughs> like you said, there's all these myths. Johnny O'Keefe told me about it. They were, it was October 1957, and it was the second rock and roll tour of Australia. Bill Haley was first, and this was Little Richard, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Alice Leslie, who was billed as the female Elvis Presley, and very young Johnny O'Keefe. Yeah. He, he hadn't even had his first hit then. So he wasn't, he wasn't a, a big star. Now, as I understand yeah. it, this yeah. started, was it on the trip to Australia, on the plane? Yeah, well, yes. It seems crazy now, but in 1957, churches and people were saying that rock and roll was the devil's music and the world is going to hell hmm. and all this. And Little Richard came from a very, very religious, you know, Southern Baptist-type family, and he kept threatening to... To go into the ministry and Billy Graham the evangelist was huge and he was up on the podium saying rock and roll is the devil's music so little Richard was talking about it on the plane and on the plane from Adelaide to Melbourne one of the engines was glowing he said and little Richard thought the plane was going to crash but there was never any problem but he said oh you know the Lord will save me and anyway he said if I live through this I'll give it up so when they were in Newcastle they were in a bus there was a bus picked them up at Williamtown and they're driving onto the punt and when they're on the punt little Richard said I'm a quitting show business and I'm going to serve the Lord <laughs> something like that probably Some, better something like that yes <laughs> Johnny Johnny O'Keefe in the in in the letter to me he said in his way of speaking <laughs> Little Richard, I'm a, but Johnny O'Keefe used to take off Little Richard really good. I'm a quitting show business. So his bass player, bass, he said, if you're quitting show business, Little Richard, you should throw all your jewellery away. So with that, he chucked all his jewellery in the harbour. And they went and did the show at the Newcastle Stadium, uh, which is where Market Town is now. Johnny O'Keefe said they were a bit concerned what, the show would be like because Little Richard was going on about giving it a miss. But he said it was the best show, Little Richard, that he ever saw him do on that tour. He said it was great. So that's the truth of it. And uh, 
as Johnny says in the letter to me, if you're speaking to any of the American musicologists or historians, please make sure that it's corrected to read Newcastle. And as you know, I was hassling you to see if we could get a statue on the foreshore or something. Um, I tell you what, it would be great. The Bee Gees have got a, a huge memorial in Redcliffe. And Bond's got one in Bond's Western Australia. Bond's got in Fremantle. Yeah. I'm telling you what, it would be enormous for Newcastle. Um, if you had the statue of Little Richard, Johnny O'Keefe, Jean Vincent, uh, Eddie Cochran, say, I could just see tourists, <laughs> honestly, I could just see tourists lining up to get a photo with the statue. Uh-huh. I'll talk to the Lord Mayor. Please, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to go to any meetings. I know, I, tried, I know. I tried 25 years ago and it fell on deaf ears, but um, I'm, I'm persistent. Yeah, there's a few statues that I get asked about occasionally. Uh, so th- there's a request for a Joey Johns statue. There's, <laughs> there's yeah. a few. Anyway, noted. <laughs> um, I think when you've actually got that correspondence from JOK... That nails it. ..who was there with him, that yep. that's your evidence, yeah. that's... All the provenance you need. Pat Barton was there too. You'd, re- you'd, know, you'd remember Pat. I do remember Pat. He was there too. He told yeah. me about it. Yeah. That's exactly how it happened. So every time I watch the David Allen up and down the port, up and down, up and down the dredge, up and down the port and yeah. dumping off the coast, I'm just like, where's the jewellery? Yeah. <laughs> Ten where's... miles out or something, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Where's the bling? But it's a great story and it's the only, as Johnny O'Keefe said, it's the only city in the world that can claim that story. And it's written about in dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of books, but it always says Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah. Because it sa- sounds better, I suppose. Rick Poynton, it's been a real pleasure to Thank catch you, up Carol. with I've you. enjoyed it. And to, to have some stories for you. Maybe we should do some more from the book Love in to. another six months yeah. and, and share them around occasionally. It's a big, it's a big thick book and yeah. it's chock-a-block full of stories and photos and um, just incredible tales and I, I guess a lot of it for you know I predate you by a few years but a lot of these people are people that I know my parents loved and loved yep. listening to and loved seeing perform live but your career through music goes into you know that time where I became a little tiny baby music fan mm-hmm. when you were doing gigs with Sherbet yeah. and so on yeah. so there's that really gorgeous crossover there and I as I mentioned right at the start Rick I reckon anybody who enjoys Lost Newcastle enjoys a little bit of local history or if you're a music history fan and you want to know how Newcastle became a musical city your book Thank you so much. It's a cracker. Where do we get it? Well, it's in most news agencies, a lot, most of them, and most of the bookshops without naming anybody, so it shouldn't be hard to find. And you're in Lost Newcastle as well, so people can always send you a message there. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for your time. thank you, Carol. I've enjoyed it. Do you have a Lost Newcastle story to tell? Get in touch. I'm Carol Duncan, and you can be part of the story too at lostnewcastle.com.au or join us on Facebook and Instagram.